0: Hello and welcome to another instalment of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, Hieronymus J. Doom, and this episode we're taking a look at book 43 in the long-running fighting fantasy series Keep of the Lich Lord by Dave Morris and Jamie Thompson, with internal illustrations and cover art by David Gallagher. A few quick notices before we get started. I'm currently about a third of the way through the edit of my new game book. it's going quicker than I expected, and I'm on track to deliver in the next two or three weeks, assuming playtesting goes well. It'll be going out to all the lovely people who supported me at patreon.com forward slash hjdoom, and I'm hoping that I'll be able to announce my next project as soon as this one is done and dusted. I also have a new patron to thank, Pat Trayon. Pat, thanks so much for supporting my nonsense with your hard earned cash. It is much appreciated. Also, a reminder that friend of the podcast, Stuart Lloyd, is running the 2023 24 Lindebaum Prize for the best 100 section gamebook. There's prize money, access to a gamebook authoring tool, and a commemorative miniature painted by my own fair hand for the winner. Submissions are open until the 20th of February so you've still got time to write something brilliant. I'd love for the judges to be completely snowed under with entries. This is an awesome opportunity to showcase your talents. Go to lloydofgamebooks.com for more details or search for the Lindebaum Prize, L-I-N-D-E-B-A-U-M, to find all the juicy deets. Now on with the show. I felt a little stab of excitement when I saw Dave Morris's name on the credits list for this one. We've covered a few Dave Morris books on the podcast, including The Wonderful Heart of Ice, which was one of the best books I've ever played. Seems amazing that this is his first and only fighting fantasy book, but here we are. He's partnered here with Jamie Thompson, less of a stranger to fighting fantasy fans since he wrote Talisman of Death and Sword of the Samurai, with his regular gamebook co-writer Mark Smith, with whom he wrote Way of the Dragon, the series of ninja-themed gamebooks which I somehow haven't managed to cover yet. Oh, they'll be coming, I promise you that. Dave Gallagher is also a known quantity at this point. He provided covers for Battleblade Warrior, Stealer of Souls, Portal of Evil and Fangs of Fury. He's not my favourite illustrator, but his work is always solid and characterful and that seems to be the case here from a quick glance at the art. His cover shows a chap wrapped in a dark cloak and a very evil helmet, staring into the distance in front of a gloomy looking castle, which I imagine might just be the titular keep of the Lich Lord. He looks oddly sulky with his arms folded, as if he's just been told that he's got to go to a family gathering when there's a big match he'd rather be watching. It's pretty good! The subdued colour palette really gives it a sense of menace. Okay, let's take a look at the rules. We have skill, stamina and luck all present and correct, but we've also got an additional stat. This being an adventure filled with evil undead, we've been told to generate a resolve score by rolling 1d6 and adding 5 to the total to give a range of 6 to 11. Resolve works a bit like luck. When a horrible undead monstrosity starts getting all up in your business, you roll 2d6 against your resolve. Fail, and not only will you be rooted to the spot with fear, but you must deduct 1 from your current resolve. On the other hand, if you succeed, you may add 1 to your current resolve, even if that would take you over your initial value. Uh, Your resolve is capped at 12, however. Now there's already a bit of an issue with this. If you roll a maximum resolve of 11 and pass your first test you will go to 12 and therefore pass every single resolve test thereafter. On the other hand get a low resolve and fail that first test and you're going to be very quickly on the path of reducing your resolve to the minimum of two and therefore be very unlikely to pass any future resolve tests. Feels a little bit backwards mechanically speaking to me. It makes a degree of intuitive sense. Confidence breeds confidence on the one hand and on the other, once your resolve starts faltering, you're less likely to be able to stand firm next time. But from a game design perspective, there is an issue because you're punishing failure twice and rewarding success twice, which makes both good and bad outcomes very swingy. It could be deliberate, of course, and I'll need to see how it works in practice, mechanic is only as good as the purpose you put it to after all but it doesn't feel like a well balanced design at first glance. Hopefully there will be lots of decisions that also affect the resolve score without needing to roll because that's more or less the only way to balance the system as it is written. There's also another mechanic rather clunkily called alarm value which starts to apply once we get to the dark fella's evil castle and want to try and avoid making too much noise. Uh, We'll obviously deal with that when and if we get to it. Otherwise, we've got the sword and leather armour that all adventurers seem to get, and a full set of ten provisions, which is basically the luxury hamper option at this point in the series. Nice to have so much tuck on hand for a recording done during the Christmas season. I've rolled up a character who I've decided to call Wingnut Harmonica, because that sounds like a brave and heroic name. They have a skill of 9, a stamina of 14, and a luck of 9, because I felt like rolling up a legitimate character rather than my usual above-average adventurer. It's a good job we've got so much food on hand with the absolute minimum stamina rolled for this character. They do, however, have a resolve of 11, which means I will be able to test my supposition that the system doesn't really work once you get to the extremes of the scale. With all that out of the way, let's play Keep of the Lich Lord. Background You have voyaged east of Cool to the Arrowhead Islands. Here you signed on for a short time as a mercenary in the famous White Tiger Regiment, but now your term of service is up. Just as you are packing your belongings before leaving Port Vernail, word reaches you that you have been summoned by the Triumvirs, the council of three who rule the Veradian alliance. You arrive at the council chamber to find old General Chidashu awaiting your arrival. So there is already an enormous profusion of silly made-up words. I would expect nothing less. He explains the situation as together you wait for your audience with the Triumvirs. Even though you're a foreigner, you've learned a bit about our country while you've been here, he says. You know that the various city-states of the Veradian Alliance are the outer bulwark of civilization against the reavers of Blood Island. Our fleet holds those Chaos Pirates in check, and have done for centuries. Now all that could be changing. Our main fortification to the east is Bloodrise Keep on Staying Island. However, we've lost contact with the keep and the outlying villages. Before General Chidashu can tell you any more, you are called into the council chamber. The triumvirs are studying a glimmering image that floats in the centre of the chamber, a V-shaped line of verdant islands set in an azure sea. You realise it is a strategic map of the Arrowhead Archipelago, fashioned by means of mirage spells. One of the Triumvirs points to the bright red dot on the shore of the easternmost island. This shows the location of Bloodrise Keep, he says. We have here the last report filed by Castellan Braxis, and it sheds a rather sinister light on recent developments there. You take the report and quickly scan it. Bloodrise Keep will shortly fall. The troops I sent to investigate the strange lights in the sky above the village of Manila have now returned. They have marched back to within sight of the walls but refused to answer signals. A runner sent out came back shivering with dread. He got close enough to see that the men have grey, mask-like faces and that their eyes are the staring eyes of zombies. In place of their old battle standards they now carry ragged black pennants. The symbol of plague. Even as I write, it is close to dusk, and the camp is active. Troops are massing, and people from the village are also milling about the camp as though hypnotized. I can see a man in tarnished silver armour who appears to be in command. Now he has given the order for his troops to advance. There are too many for the small garrison I have left. We cannot hope to hold them off for more than a few hours. I will send this report by messenger pigeon and hope it will not be shot down by the enemy's archers. Now, it only remains for me to take up my weapons and go out to the battlefield for the last stand. I regret having failed in your service, my lords. I am your dutiful vassal, Braxis, Castellan of Bloodrise Keep. So, classic fighting fantasy territory, the kingdom is imperiled. Big Army of Undead, that's a nice twist on the traditional army of demons. Um It's kinda weird to think that at this point an army of demons is kind of traditional in Fighting Fantasy. A brave man, you say grimly as you return the report to the Triumvirs. Do you have any information as to who the silver armored warlord might be and how he took control of Braxis troops? It is all too clear, says one of the Triumvirs. Black plague standards and tarnished silver armour are the trademarks of Lord Mortis of Balthor. He was formerly tyrant of Stang Island, and he tried to conquer the eastern province of our nation. It took the combined strength of all the Viradian armies to defeat him, for he was a mighty necromancer, as well as a warlord, and it is said that he recruited his army from the bodies of fallen foes. Baffled, you turn to General Chidershu. How is it I've never heard of this Mortis? you ask. I didn't know there'd been any wars within the archipelago for centuries. There haven't, he says. This all happened two hundred years ago. Mortis died in battle and was buried in a black granite tomb near the village of Melena. Now it seems that he has returned from the grave to take his revenge. The Triumvirs nod in agreement. He is even now turning the people of Stang into undead, says one. His evil will eat into our empire like a cancerous wound unless it is excised. For this we have need of a sharp knife. You. Your interview over. General Chidershoe takes you without delay to the harbour where a ship has already been prepared for you. Although he is hardly a young man, even you have difficulty keeping up with the general's brisk stride. On the way, he explains that most of the military strength of the Viradian Alliance is currently engaged in fighting the Reavers of Blood Island. This means you're on your own, he warns. In any case, since assassinating Mortis would immediately neutralize his entire army of zombies, the Triumvirs feel that it makes more sense to send one capable individual than a large body of troops. Take a drink if you're playing a fighting fantasy drinking game because we've got a very flimsy excuse as to why sending a single adventurer on a mission is a much better plan than sending an entire army. On arriving at the ship, Chidershu introduces you to its captain and then accompanies you to your cabin for a final briefing. He gives you a map of Stang Island and a ring of communing. The ring will allow you to communicate with us telepathically for information or advice, but over such a large distance it will function only a limited number of times, so use it sparingly. So we have a ring of communing with three charges. A whistle from on deck signals that the ship is ready to cast off. Chidashi turns to the doorway of the cabin for a last word. Don't forget, he says grimly. It is vital that you stop Mortis before his undead army can join force with the Reavers. The lives of us all are in your hands. Rest assured, General, He reply as you slip the Ring of Communing on your finger. I'll return Lord Mortis to his grave. It is only after he has saluted you and left that you find an inner voice adding, or die in the attempt. So there is the background. I would say it is about the most meat and potatoes fighting fantasy background you could possibly imagine with the slight wrinkle that it's an army of undead rather than demons or lizards or orcs. I'm not going to criticise it for being meat and potatoes. It's fine. I don't mind and I like having a nice clear simple mission that I can use to motivate my character when I'm making decisions. Cliches are cliches for a reason, and there's nothing wrong with this as an opening. The small boat arrives at Stillport a week or so later. The journey is uneventful, and by the end of it, you are almost looking forward to your coming challenge. Stillport is a dilapidated old town, which was once prosperous, but which has now fallen on the hardest of times. The harbour is shallow and heavily silted, making the docking of any large ship impossible. Hence its name and its lack of prosperity. However, the captain of your small skiff has no trouble getting you ashore, and with a curt farewell, he sails away, obviously keen to get home. The people, what few there are, eye you suspiciously. But looking around, it seems that Stillport has suffered more from lack of trade than the ravages of Mortis's undead horde. Perhaps the town is far enough away from Bloodrise Keep to remain untouched as yet. You notice few shops and fewer taverns. The place is almost a ghost town. Do you want to go to one of the taverns to try and pick up some rumours or would you prefer to leave Stillport straight away? Uh, We're going to go to the taverns. Interestingly, there's usually a picture, I feel, for the opening uh, section proper to kind of set the scene and that is not the case here. There's just a couple of small pictures of some skeletons and some um, Viking-esque reavers that I guess will be repeated multiple times throughout the text. Um, yeah, an unusual stylistic choice. Still, let's go and look at this inn. You enter an inn called the Sword of the Samurai. Ah, a little callback. Inside, several ex-sailors and townspeople glance up at you warily. After buying a round or two of drinks, you get into conversation with some of them. One old sailor tells you, "Oi, it's the night times that are most dangerous in these parts. As long as ye be safe inside, behind locked and barred windows and doors, mark ye, ye can survive." You ask him to go on, and he tells a frightening tale of foul creatures stalking the streets, of people disappearing to return to their families and friends as hideous walking corpses. All this, since they heard of the sacking of Bloodrise Keep a month or two past. Anyhow, growls the sailor, what be a young warrior like yourself doing in this forsaken hellhole? Will you tell the sailor and those others who are listening of your mission to Stang Island, or say that you are just passing through on your way to some islands west of here? Um, I think we'll try honesty first and see where that gets us in a low whisper you tell the sailor of your intention to slay mortis free the island of the undead who terrorise it and thus rob the chaos pirates of the ally they need to destroy the delphic islands he is overjoyed at this news and promptly tells everyone present about your mission soon they are all buying you drinks and wishing you luck you spend a pleasant evening quaffing ale and impressing the locals You do notice a shifty-looking individual leaving surreptitiously, but you soon forget him as another round of drinks is brought. Note down the word pirates on your adventure sheet. Nice to see a keyword making an appearance at this early stage. The next day you decide to get on with your mission, presumably with a terrible hangover, and leave Stillport. You arrive at the main gate of Stillport, Worried guards gaze out into the surrounding countryside, as if they expect a thousand zombie warriors to appear and assault the place at any moment. Perhaps they will, you think, grimly to yourself. You step out onto the main road outside the town. Ha! We'll never see that one again, I wager. You overhear one of them mutter to another. Will you head north on the road to Manila? South through the hills, or use your ring to communicate with General Chidershu? Uh, let's try and communicate with Chidershu. I want to see how useful this ring actually is. You concentrate on the ring, holding the image of the general in your mind. A flickering image of the old veteran's grizzled visage appears in your mind, and a voice speaks inside your head. Ah, a report! Where are you and what have you found, young warrior? He asks. You tell him that you have arrived safely and are now outside Steelport, ready to undertake the quest. What? Bellows Chidashu. You wasted a charge of the ring just to tell me you've arrived, you imbecile! Well, since you're here, so to speak, you must travel north and try and find the tomb of Mortis. There you may also find the ancient weapon that slew him. Now get on with it, and don't waste my time with trifling reports! Then contact is broken. Will you head north towards Manila, or south through the hills? Well, we've been given a pretty clear indication that we must go north. A big part of me does want to go south just because I have a near Pavlovian reaction to being talked down to. It gets my back up something chronic. Uh, I recognise this as a flaw in my character, but does make me very disinclined to take the advice of people under those circumstances. So, do you know what? I'm going to go with my first instinct and I'm actually going to go south through the hills and be damned to General Chidershu. We'll see whether he's still happy to treat underlings with uh, contempt once he's been murdered by some pirates and zombies. I hope I die. That'll show him the road takes you south for some way then it turns east rising up into the rocky hills soon you find yourself walking through a shallow pass between two peaks do you have the word pirate on your adventure sheet i surely do suddenly an arrow thuds into the ground beside your foot you look up to see three figures with bows shooting at you from behind a boulder a little way up the side of the pass you recognize one of them As the shady-looking man you saw leaving the Sword of Samurai Inn at Stillport. The other two look like buccaneers, or chaos pirates. An arrow grazes your shoulder. Deduct one point from your stamina. Stamina now. Thirteen. Will you charge up the hill at the pirates, or make a run for it down the pass? Um, three pirates. I've got a skill of nine. I think we'll be taking to our heels. You charge off at full speed down the pass. The ambushers yell in rage, but by the time they have made it down to the path, you are long gone. Discretion is the better part of valour, you think smugly to yourself. Soon the road leads downwards, east and out of the hills. The road leads you past an old quarry, long disused which has been dug out of the foothills. You notice that part of one of the quarry rock faces has crumbled away, revealing a fissure-like cave entrance. Do you wish to enter this cave? Of course I do. What could be finer than entering a dangerous cave? Lighting a torch, you clamber in through the black, yawning fissure. Inside, your torchlight reveals that you have entered an ancient building, which must have stood here buried for centuries, and now uncovered by a chance rockfall. You realise you are standing at a huge doorway. Inset in the floor in letters of red stone are the words the Temple of Lys, goddess of luck and fortune. At the end of this huge vaulted chamber, you can just make out some sort of altar. Five fluted columns line the walls to either side of you, forming small cloisters. Ahead, a wide marble corridor leads to the altar. Something glints on the altar in the flickering torchlight. Will you walk up the central passageway, take the left colonnade? or the right colonnade or turn your back on the Temple of Lys and continue on your way. Well, it's not quite a straight left right decision, but I am bound by the iron law of Fantastic Fights to take the left option when it is first presented. So the left option is what we will take. You edge your way along the left hand colonnade. You are just passing the third column when a blood chilling wail assaults your ears. Out of the darkness ahead of you, ghostly apparitions streak towards you like nightmarish visions from hell itself. Test your resolve, subtracting one from the total rolled, okay they are aware that there's an issue with the resolve system and have tried to build in a way round it so so this is a, a sufficiently easy resolve test that I will pass it automatically. My resolve of eleven meaning that my resolve is now twelve so i pass the resolve test and now unless they make resolve tests more difficult by adding numbers to the total rolled yeah i cannot fail these visions have no power to harm you and you cut at them boldly with your sword with an eerie wail they fade away you step up to the altar The altar is a block of black stone draped in red velvet, tattered and decayed. On it are laid a scroll case, an ornate golden whistle, and a potion labelled Elixir of Lys. You may take one of these from the altar, or leave the temple without taking anything. Why can't we take all of them? got a backpack. There's nothing there particularly large, but uh, yeah, I'm definitely going to take at least one item from this little lot. You are about to pick up one of the items when a disturbance of the air distracts you. Looking up, you see an opaque crimson gas swirling and coalescing into human shape before your very eyes. Seconds later, a tall being stands where moments ago there was but empty air. It is covered from head to toe in armour fashioned out of scarlet metal, antique in style but uncorroded. Two pinpricks of ruby light sparkle behind the visored helm. A deep voice resonates from within. I am the temple guardian. The gifts of Lys are not so easily won, mortal adventurer. First, you must defeat me. Its hollow laughter echoes through the vaulted chamber as it brandishes its weapons. A long, thin sword in each hand. You must fight. There's a picture of the Temple Guardian. I think it's really good. Big skeleton fella in armour. kind a classic role-playing slash wargaming image. Um, yeah, I really like it. Um, very characterful. Great use of darkness to um, highlight the, uh, the armour. It's a good bit of work. So the Temple Guardian has a skill of 9 and a stamina of 10. But every time I succeed in wounding the Guardian, I've got to roll a die on a one to four. It's slightly deflected by some ludicrously unlucky event. So I must subtract one point from the damage. But on a roll of five or six, the blow is rendered more effective by some equally preposterous stroke of fortune, allowing me to add one damage to the total. Based on that, I think I'm going to lose this combat because I only have a skill of nine. I have 13 stamina and I think the um, special ability of the Temple Guardian is probably good enough to add another two or three points of stamina to his effective health pool. So with my heart in my mouth I'm going to fight the Temple Guardian and of course I'm going to roll some dice. I have been defeated by the temple guardian. I reduced it to five stamina points. As well as having um, lucky defences, the temple guardian also turned out to have extremely lucky dice rolling abilities. So uh, it's obviously far too soon to call an end to the adventure. So I will invoke the sausagey finger bookmark rule and declare that I actually won that combat. Um, But that I was reduced to a single stamina point through it, um, which means that before anything else happens, I am going to eat a full roast dinner with all the trimmings, a couple of packets of Monster Munch, and a hearty portion of Trifle to regain 12 points of stamina, taking my stamina back up to 13, leaving me on seven provisions. Your last blow seems to cut through thin air as the temple guardian dissipates into nothingness. You pick up the golden whistle from the altar noted on your adventure sheet and the scroll reads blow the whistle at the finger of Lys to win great power. You may also take the elixir of Lys whenever you wish to drink the potion. Note the number of the paragraph you are currently reading then turn to 35 once you have finished, return to the paragraph you have noted and read on. You also find a pouch containing 25 gold pieces. That all seems pretty awesome. Now I have the choice of leaving the temple or communing with General Chidersho to see what he knows about the Finger of Lise. So I think we'll do that. See if he's rude to me this time. Holding up the ring, you think of the general. Presently, his grizzled face appears in your mind. You wish to report, he says, his voice a tickle in your brain. You tell him about recent events and ask what he knows of the finger. Never heard of it, he growls. Now get on with your mission and stop wasting my time. And more importantly, stop using up charges of the ring. His face abruptly disappears from your mind. So we have one remaining charge of the ring of communing and... General Childishu has continued to be immensely rude to us, so I guess we carry on trying to make terrible choices in the hope that we die just to spite him. As you step through the doors of the Temple of Lys into bright sunshine, you suddenly feel a warm glow inside. Add one to your initial and current luck. Oh, that's awesome. So my luck goes from nine to ten, and my maximum luck increases to ten. That's very helpful. Smiling happily, you continue onward. Darkness falls. You make camp just off the road in readiness for any trouble. However, the night passes uneventfully and you get a good rest. Restore three lost stamina points. Stamina now up to fourteen. The next day, you leave the hills behind you, heading for the inn that is marked on your map. It is late afternoon by the time you arrive at a three-way crossroads. An inn stands at the junction of the roads. As you near it, you see it is called "Down Among the Dead Men," doubtless intended as a wry joke in times gone by. For the inn overlooks the cemetery. Nowadays, the name is also a horrible irony, a constant reminder of the terrible events which have befallen the people of Stang. As you near the inn you see a sign outside the cemetery. Stang Cemetery. But the word Stang has been crossed out, and vampire substituted in barely legible scrawl. Graffiti have been daubed in a rust-coloured substance over the ceremonial granite portal of the cemetery. You can make out Bloodfang rules OK in another spidery scrawl. But for the lonesome cawing of some bird far overhead, and the faint sounds of activity inside the inn, it is very quiet here. Untended fields of corn stretch out behind the inn, and the sun beats down. Consulting your map again, you now have a choice of routes. Will you enter the inn, or set off and follow the road south towards Shamdebag Wood, and thence to the village of Caledon, or take the road west towards Port Borgus? I will say this is actually pretty nicely written. Um, I'm finding it very uh, absorbing as a book. They do vary enormously with the writing quality and this one feels really good. Now let's go into the inn. Always like an inn. To an adventure feels like a real treat. You open the door and step into a snug, well-lit and cosy room. Delicious smells of good cooking and fine ales waft into your nostrils but the strongest smell is that of garlic, for the doors and windows are framed with wreaths of garlic buds. There are about ten people in the room. Each and every one looks up in horror as you enter, but when they see you are not undead, they appear to calm down. Nevertheless, it is clear that a few swords have been loosed in their scabbards. The innkeeper, a large, burly and red-faced man with a mighty beer-gut, waddles up to you, a manic grin fixed on his florid features. Welcome, stranger, welcome, he babbles, to uh, the dead man's, uh, well, uh, the the traveller's respite, as I prefer to call it in these days. Take a seat and I'll bring you ale and some stew. The beer's free, I'm trying to get rid of it as I'll be making a run for it myself any day now. One gold piece buys you the meal and a room and with that he bustles off. You look around. In a corner, a soldier, his uniform covered by an old jerkin, stares into a mug of ale. He has a dark, troubled look about him. Three farmers stare sullenly at you from another table. In the darkened corner sits a cowled figure clad in black robes. You cannot see the hands or face, but intuition tells you that this figure has a sinister aura about it. That's not intuition, that's just looking at someone. Finally nearest to you sits a middle-aged merchant flanked by two hired bodyguards, northern barbarians by the look at them. The merchant, tall and surprisingly thin for one of his venal profession, beckons you over to join him. The innkeeper returns with a mug of ale for you and goes back to work behind the bar. So there's a picture of the bar with the uh, ingratiating innkeeper um, coming towards you and various figures sort of caught in the shadows behind. Again, I think it's really good, actually. Uh, Very characterful. There's a sense of unease about it, as well as a sort of sense of welcoming, which is a contrast that's quite hard to do. And I think Dave Gallagher's done a pretty bang-up job here. Yeah, another really good bit of art. So we can talk to the merchant or the farmers or try and pump the innkeeper for some useful information. I can imagine the innkeeper's got much to say. Also, I don't want to do the voice again. So I'm going to go and talk to the merchant. "'Sit down, sit down,' says the merchant as you approach his table. "'I see that you are an adventurer. "'I have some items for sale that might be of interest to one such as you. "'I'm headed for Stillport. "'Recent circumstances force me to flee Stang, "'and I am able to offer my stock at remarkable cut-price rates, "'provided you have enough gold you may buy whatever you wish from the merchant.' Uh, I can't afford any of them because the Puff Ball, which explodes when thrown, is 45 gold. Two potions of Healing, which restore stamina, are 30 gold. A Ring of Skill, which adds plus one skill, is 70 gold. A Fine Suit of Armor, which subtracts one from all damage, is 65. So, yeah, got nothing. Can't even haggle. Never mind. I guess we have to go and talk to the Innkeeper, then. You turn to the innkeeper behind the bar. He nods nervously at you. Will you ask him why all the entrances to the inn are surrounded with garlic, or why he intends to make a run for it? I mean, I feel like I can guess the answer to both of those questions. There's a vampire in the graveyard, and there's an army of undead monsters. Let's pretend we're morons and ask about the garlic. His face blanches. Protection, he mutters under his breath before hurrying off into the kitchen, plainly terrified. You can now talk to the farmers or the merchant. We've done the merchant, so I guess we'll do the farmers. You walk over and sit at the farmer's table. They welcome you grudgingly and suspiciously. Will you ask them about the graffiti at the cemetery, or about the black-robed figure? Black-robed figure, please. Don't know. Never seen him before, says one. Probably one of them agents of that Mortis fella, says another. Oh, you certainly don't intend to find out, says the third. Will you ask about the graffiti, or have you asked all the questions you want for now? Uh, we may as well ask about the graffiti. Don't know anything about that, says one gruffly. The other two look scared when you mention it. Will you offer two pieces of gold for more information, or... Are you kind of done with this? Uh, we might as well offer them some money. I mean, twenty-five gold is apparently no use for actually buying things. The first farmer snatches up the pieces of gold and leans forward to whisper conspiratorially in your ear. The other two farmers look plainly terrified. Blood Fang is the name we give to the hideous creature that stalks the living from its lair in the cemetery. Some of us have been disappearing lately, mumbles the farmer. Obvious vampire is indeed a vampire. Uh, We've done all the talking. One of my favourite bits of any role playing game is the gathering of the rumours. I don't know why, it just sort of tickles me somehow to sort of know what the people around are talking about. And rumours just really bring the world to life because they don't just give you information, they give you characters' perspectives on that information. And I find that really helps sell me on a world. Uh, Yeah. Big fan of the old gathering of rumours. Outside, as the sun sinks, darkness is creeping over the land like a fog. Patrons of the inn smile nervously and put on a false air of joviality. The innkeeper starts to fidget and fiddle with the garlic buds. The soldier looks up from his mug and nods at you in a comradely fashion. Although... Something about his eyes disturb you. Will you leave the inn and carry on with your journey, or decide to go up to your room and get some sleep? Well, we've paid for a room, so let's go and get some sleep. As you are walking past the table where the black cowled figure sits, he grabs your wrist in a vice like grip and leans forward as if to speak or to stab you. Just then, the soldier appears and pushes him to the floor. Get out! He screams at the figure lying sprawled on the ground. The unknown gets up and slinks away without a sound save for a light cough. The soldier smiles then and motions for you to sit. You can't trust anyone in these parts. There are servants of Mortis everywhere, he comments in a surprisingly cultured voice, which I'm choosing to render as Yorkshire because Yorkshire is the home of all true culture. Well met, my friend. My name is Caddager, former soldier of Bloodrise Keep. He unfastens his studded leather jerkin to display his uniform hidden underneath. Its livery shows the falcon symbol of Castellan Braxis of Bloodrise Keep. I managed to escape when Mortis attacked and took the keep. He still holds Braxis prisoner for his own ends, but uh, most of the soldiers were slain. Now, that is to say, slain for a spell and then brought back, you know, as uh, zombies. Cadiga looks over you and adds, I judge you to be no friend of Mortis. Tell me who you are. you want to tell him the truth about your mission or pass yourself off as an adventurer who made the mistake of coming to Stang at the wrong time and who now just seeks to get off as soon as possible? I'm going to continue being unbelievably trusting of everyone I run into. Come to the conclusion that this character, Wingnut Harmonica, is as gullible as they come. You tell him all about your mission to destroy Mortis and rescue Braxis, if at all possible. He nods excitedly. Good news, he says, for I am a veteran of Braxis' garrison and eager to avenge my lord and serve my country. He looks keenly at you. Let me accompany you. I will make you an invaluable companion. As for the strange behaviour of the people at this inn, a coven of vampires has taken over the cemetery and are terrorising the area. We should travel on to Bloodrise Keep as soon as possible and destroy Mortis. When that is done, all the undead on this island will be equally destroyed. Come, let us take a room for the night and be on our way tomorrow. Together we can succeed where one alone would be defeated. It feels good, having a companion to help you on your lonely quest. You decide to share a room so that one of you can remain awake at all times in case of attack during the night from vampires. Is this guy going to turn out to be an actual vampire, is the question. Um, I hope not, but I suspect so. Kadiga takes the first watch and you lie down to rest. Just as you're at the point of falling asleep, the door flies open and the black-robed figure you saw in the room downstairs bursts in. Acting with commendable speed, Kadiga trips up the intruder with a deft kick. A moment later, his sword is at the throat of the sprawling night prowler. Will you stop him killing the unknown person or let him finish the job? I mean, I have to continue trusting him to a ludicrous degree because that's what I've decided to play this character as. So even though there's every chance that the night prowler is trying to kill Kadiga because he is in fact a vampire, I'm just going to let Kadiga murder him. You say and do nothing as Kadiga slays his victim without mercy. This turns out to be a woman, an elf, in fact. Odd, murmurs Cadiga, but I have heard of certain elves who've turned to the service of evil. Well, what's done is done, you say, philosophically. Some hours later, you are woken by the touch of a cold blade at your throat. You open your eyes just in time to see Cadiga standing over you with a sneer on his face. It is the last thing you ever see. So I've succeeded in my attempts to get myself killed in order to irritate my commander back home. I guess we'll finish the recording there. I'm tempted to carry on but I'm also aware that I'm having an absolutely lovely time with this book. I don't really want to spoil too much of it if you haven't already played it yourself. So I will end the recording there. I will go away and play through it on my own time and then come back with some closing remarks in just a few moments. Tatty bye! Keep of the Lich Lord is a bit of a strange one for all sorts of reasons and I initially found it quite hard to know what to make of it. Firstly, had I been playing more sensibly, there's every chance that I could have beaten this on the recorded playthrough. It's a very easy book to finish, and I beat it on the third time of asking, and only failed on the second because I found one of the small number of death sections accidentally on purpose. I don't regret playing like a fool. After 43 episodes of the podcast, I think there's some mileage in trying to play in ways that are unconventional. Keeps things interesting for me, and it does mean that you're unlikely to have the same experience as the recorded playthrough. There's another factor as well. Sometimes a game book will throw up a meta-narrative that I find irresistible. After being told off by Chidashu, there was something just so tempting about playing the character as a sulky brat. I find it very pleasurable to try and play game books in ways that allow me to bring some kind of characterisation to the table, That interacts weirdly with the established systems. Often the results will be surreal, but in this case, being deliberately intractable led to my character dying in a game that is, if anything, too generous to the player. As an aside, I remember playing one of the Dragon Age video games and being irrationally annoyed that it gave you the option to refuse the call to adventure, but then did nothing, narratively speaking, with that option, since they clearly hadn't seriously considered the consequences of saying no. I therefore decided to play the game as the most unhelpful character I possibly could, just saying no whenever there was an option, refusing each and every story prompt to the best of my ability. The game quickly broke, because hardly any of the options being presented were actually options. And I think it's nice that Keep of the Lich Lord didn't break just because I was being difficult. I ended up having a much shorter adventure, but crucially I felt able to express my character's frustrations with their boss, and that's a nice thing. I felt that I had enough control of my character's destiny to be able to refuse to play ball, and I think that kind of meta-narrative stuff is just awesome when it crops up. It's something that only works if there's a coherent sense of the NPC's character as well. Chide issue's responses are exactly what you might expect from a no-nonsense military fellow of a certain age, and that runs through his presentation throughout the book, which makes it much more fun to pretend to take offence. It's not something that's appropriate for every game book. Sometimes you, the protagonist, don't have that much agency because you're trapped in a situation or constrained in some other way by the demands of the environment. And I think if there's a lesson in this, it's that giving the player the option to ignore sensible advice Is probably a good idea, and that this works best if ignoring the advice doesn't immediately lead to death. If the inevitable wise old man tells you to go one way and the other leads to an immediately fatal trap, you don't actually have an option to ignore the advice. Much better to have choosing to ignore the advice simply make the quest a bit more difficult. I could still have beaten Keep of the Lich Lord even by ignoring Chidashu, but following his advice is still the right thing to do. The advice is kind of cool, I really like the idea of being able to phone a friend like the quest is some high-stakes version of Who Wants To Be A Millionaire, but I'm not sure that this was the right book for it. Considering it's already fairly straightforward, there's not much to be gained by giving the player an option to get some help. It's a mechanic that would interface better in a book with some old-fashioned puzzles where getting a hint would be really handy. Um Might also be good if you could use it when you come up against an item check in the text. you don't have the key, but maybe you could get a hint for where to look, even if that won't save the current playthrough. If you want to discourage people from using the hints too much, you can tie the final outcome to how many times they've used the resource and reserve the best ending for a run that doesn't use any and That was another thing that I kind of missed in this book. I' have no problem with easy books, but I do think. They need to incentivise good play in other ways, and different endings are one of the best ways to do that. Keep of the Lich Lord has a profusion of items that you can find to make life easier, but even if you don't find any of them, there's still a fair chance of winning if you rolled a decent character. On the one hand, I like that there's no artifacts with three digit numbers carved into them, but on the other hand, requiring certain items to progress isn't necessarily a bad thing, especially in the later stages of an adventure. It's weird since there's all kinds of items to be found, but since none of the items are actually completely necessary and getting them all is a bit of a challenge, it's kind of strange that there's no real payoff to putting in the time to find everything. And this means that the climax of the adventure feels a little bit underbaked. The actual keep isn't that big, and although you have plenty of opportunities to test your resolve, it never feels like a big problem. I was more or less bang on the money with the issue I spotted with resolve. If it's high, you will basically sail through those later sections with ease. Even a low resolve won't necessarily be a massive problem either. We've seen a bunch of these fear based mechanics in fighting fantasy by this point with variable degrees of success. I think House of Hell still probably did it best with a running total of fear that creeps inexorably up until you drop dead of sheer fright. It boils down to another limited resource like stamina or luck, but having only one direction of travel gave the fear mechanic in House of Hell a unique feel. Also, with adding fear points, you don't have the option of fudging rolls like you do with luck or skill tests, and that gives it a mechanical identity that's different from the other stats, and that can be really good. If they'd started with a resolve score that was low and given you some options to improve it before tackling the keep, that might have worked better but you'd still have the mechanical issue of success breeding success and failure breeding failure. The other new mechanic, the alarm value, is even more bafflingly implemented. There's plenty of things in the keep that will add to your alarm value, but I had to try really hard to find a path that actually made your alarm value matter. You have to be pretty determined to find Mortis in his lair in the keep for the alarm to be relevant at all, and since you can easily avoid that and win more easily by avoiding that, The only way you're going to do it is if you're a completist like me and actually want to find an ending that cares whether you've been making a bunch of noise or not. In general you could basically tap dance through the keep of the lich lord itself whilst banging a drum and it would make not a hapeth of difference. So what you end up with is two systems resolve an alarm value where either of them could have worked with a bit more care and attention but both systems together wind up feeling. Quite unsatisfying. Now, those are my big criticisms, and I don't think either of them actually prevents Keeper of the Lich Lord from being a good book. I had a ton of fun exploring this one, simply because for all the issues, there's more than enough clever and fun ideas to make it quite compelling, and the fundamentals are so strong. On one level, it's approaching the platonic ideal of a fighting fantasy book you've got so many of the classic tropes present and correct. There's an evil army threatening the kingdom and a single adventurer is the only thing that will prevent disaster for reasons. You've got a relatively open area to explore in order to try and find the various bits and pieces that will help you in your quest before you enter the final dungeon to defeat the big bad. There's an old man, there's a ruined temple, there's multiple taverns, some pirates, an elf mystic, wolves and a ruined village with a trapdoor in one of the buildings, which is an oddly specific fighting fantasy trope, but it is a fighting fantasy trope. Despite being absolutely the most meat and potato stuff you could ever imagine, they've taken the time to make those encounters memorable, and this for me is probably the greatest strength of the book. While there aren't too many surprising encounters, Everything that's in there feels like it has a reason for being there and almost everything has a little bit of a twist to make it feel fresh. A coastal village is ruined because of pirates and you can go and infiltrate the pirate's ship and ruin their day. That's nice. You can find refugees hiding from mortis in the forest which makes sense and they will barter a few services and they'll do it for food rather than gold because food supplies is their current most pressing concern. There's dozens of nice touches like this scattered through the book. Don't explore the barracks of the keep because it's absolutely rammed to the gills with undead soldiers. That might seem obvious, but that doesn't mean it's not cool. You get to meet a bunch of people on your travels as well because despite this island having fallen under the sway of an evil necromancer, it was fairly populous until recently. So it's just a pleasure to explore. You also get a decent degree of freedom in terms of how you go about exploring the various locations of the island. It's not total freedom, but I was given enough opportunities to choose which direction I headed that I never felt like the book was failing to give me enough options. And this is one of the most important bits of sleight of hand in gamebook design, trying to make a messy world still feel messy, even if the character only gets three paragraphs to choose between. In the areas with multiple sublocations, Keep of the Lich Lord is generally quite good about letting you look at all of them rather than funneling you out of the area as soon as you've looked at one burnt out cottage. It's possibly over generous in this regard. I think there's sometimes mileage in having options that prevent you from doing a complete exploration of the area, but it's better to be generous rather than stingy. There's nothing worse than a book presenting you with three buildings to investigate and only letting you look in one without providing a decent rationale as to why you need to leave the area without exploring it fully. And the map is nice and easy to grasp as well. I didn't need to do any physical mapping, which I always appreciate, although I did look up a map online at the Fighting Fantasy fan website to check that I'd actually explored the whole thing. I was really pleased to discover that I'd basically found everything which speaks to a world that has a degree of internal consistency to it. The island is a simple enough location but I found it hung together in my head very easily. I could remember which bits I'd already thoroughly explored and which bits I hadn't and that's just excellent design. Anytime you can picture a place in your head without needing to put pen to paper that is a world that feels real and realised. The encounters might be fairly generic on some levels but they are varied and memorable. I particularly liked saving a pompous centaur from some wolves and getting to hang out for him for a bit even if he was a massive idiot. A fight with a pirate captain is scarcely unusual but in this case he's such a giant untrustworthy coward who breaks off from the fight several times to see if he can convince you to spare his life by which he means give him an opportunity to stab you in the kidneys. Almost all of the fights have some kind of gimmick attached to them and that helps them stand out from each other which is awesome. I've said it before that the fighting fantasy combat system can be a great tool for storytelling if you think a bit outside the box and that's certainly on display here. Uh, A specific example is there's a cool encounter with a shaman who has a staff that will drain one stamina every turn and what this does is it pushes you to consider using luck to try and end the battle early and it's actually well worth a try in this case because The shaman has an odd number of stamina which means even failing won't actually increase the length of the fight so it takes five successful attacks to kill him he's got a stamina of nine if you fail the luck test on the first round and only deal one point of damage that drops the monster to eight stamina which means you can still kill it in four more rounds for a total of five if you succeed and deal four damage you'll have shaved a full round of combat off Enabling you to kill the shaman in four rounds total. And that's something I hadn't even considered about using luck in battles, and it's definitely a rules interaction you could use in interesting ways to push people either towards or away from using luck to help with a fight that has time pressure on it. Because if the monster had had 10 stamina and I failed the luck test and did one point of damage, I would have actually extended the fight by another round. There's so much in the details of precisely how you apply systems, and I'm a massive nerd, I find that really interesting. Um, there's also a fight with some undead archers who are extremely happy to shoot their bows into combat, which feels both fun and thematically appropriate for beings which are absent any concern for their fellow combatants. They're trying to shoot you, obviously. But if they shoot the skeleton you're fighting, that's not a problem either. The best encounter in the book for me is the complex and layered tavern encounter that we saw a version of in the recorded playthrough. There's obviously the treacherous soldier, who is a marvellous character who you can run into later in the adventure, which makes for a very satisfying callback. There's also the elf woman who can lead you on an attempt to find and destroy the vampires in the cemetery, an encounter that plays out very differently depending on whether you have the treacherous soldier with you or not. Exploring the cemetery as the sun slowly goes down is a brilliant set piece, which is arguably stronger than the actual finale of the game. And I'm not just saying that because it's quite similar to the finale of my own current game book. It's great. Really, really beautifully designed. A wonderfully intricate location which can play out in multiple different ways, which makes it such a pleasure to return to it on subsequent playthroughs. The highlight of the whole game book for me. It's just a wonderful place to explore. I truly recommend Stang Island as your next holiday destination, you'll have a lovely time. Despite being pretty easy to complete, there is a distinct pleasure in seeing how the different areas fit together, and doing them in the right order makes everything unfold in a very satisfying way. And I think what I like most is how many of those encounters. Have a little story behind them. And this goes back to what I said about paying attention to world building that the player doesn't necessarily see, which I talked about a few episodes back. The treacherous soldier is a great example of that. You don't need to be told that he betrayed his oaths to the Castellan because you can infer it from his actions. You don't know the precise circumstances of how he came into Mortis's service, but you don't need to. It makes sense that Mortis would leave a few people alive. Who could go into places where a zombie would attract too much attention, what with the being dead and limbs falling off and all the rest of it. That's a textbook example of how you can do some of your world building in collaboration with the player, allowing them to fill in specific details when you've signposted them in broadly the right direction. People love doing that. I'm old enough to remember when Boba Fett was just a bit part player in Star Wars, that people got completely obsessed with, he looked so cool, and he had this kind of hint of a backstory about him. It's awesome when there's stuff that acts as an anchor for your own imagination, but that only works if the author has put in the effort to make the characters convincing enough that putting in that imaginative effort feels worthwhile. We now need to talk about the strange afterlife of Keep of the Lich Lord. This is, as far as I know, unique in being a fighting fantasy game book that the author's have actually returned to and produced a remake set in the fabled Land setting. I generally have a policy of not doing any research on a fighting fantasy book until after I've played it. I'll usually do more research for a bonus episode because I want to know a bit about the book before I start, where it sits in the larger history of interactive fiction and so forth, but for fighting fantasy books I usually prefer to go in blind so I get something like the experience of someone buying a copy from W.H. Smith's in the 90s or borrowing it from their local library. Here, that policy has come back to bite me in the bottom, since it was only as I was finalising my notes for these closing remarks that I noticed that there was a second version of the book available to buy. I've purchased a copy, but it's blatantly not going to get here before this episode needs to go live, so I can't make any specific comments about it. What I can say is I love this as an idea. I've no clue how the rights for fighting fantasy books actually work. The concept is copyrighted to Steve Jackson and Ian Livingstone, but the text is copyrighted to Morris and Thompson, so presumably that gives them some legal ability to republish the material once they've reworked it to remove the fighting fantasy elements. The publication rights to fighting fantasy have bounced around with Scholastic being the current publisher, so... I don't know how easy it would be for other authors to recreate their work in a way that means they can monetize it. With the Fighting Fantasy version of Keep of the Lich Lord going for north of twenty-five quid, it's wonderful to have a chance to get a copy of the book and put some cash in the hands of the people who created it. My current plan is to cover the reworked Keep of the Lich Lord as a bonus episode at some point next year, once I've forgotten the layout of the book, which given that I'm in my mid-40s, should take about two weeks. From a glance at the sample pages on Amazon, it looks to have been quite substantially rewritten and given a more in-depth system in line with the fabled lands system of books. But the core outline of the adventure looks like it's probably fairly similar. Anyway, there's a bonus episode to look forward to in 2024. In summary, I think Keeper of the Lich Lord is too easy but that doesn't stop it being great. That'll do it for this episode and indeed for this year. It's been a privilege to spend another 12 months talking about adventure game books with you all. This has been I think the best year for the podcast so far and I'm incredibly grateful to have an audience for my nonsense. I've got lots of things planned for 2024 but finishing my next game book is the top priority. I really wanted to get it out Before the end of December, that's not going to happen. I will be working on it over the Christmas period, and it should be in the hands of my patrons very early in the new year. Um, I hope you will bear with me. It just remains for me to wish you all a wonderful winter break, however, you are celebrating, and uh, be assured that I hope for nothing but the best for you in the new year. Thank you very much for listening. Take care